You're listening to Travaux, the symposium series. This is Global Speech Under Pressure. We're your hosts, Lily Baggett and Veronica Bognat. In today's episode, we're taking a close look at digital rights with this year's Riesenfeld Award recipient, Nani Jansen Reventlo. We asked Nani how we should define digital rights to parse the tension between those rights and identify who is responsible for their suppression. Nani Jansen Reventlo is a leading thinker and advocate at the forefront of international speech rights. She is a human rights lawyer who supports the advancement of digital rights through strategic litigation. In addition to serving as founding director of the Digital Freedom Fund, Nani is a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, an associate tenant at Dowdy Street Chambers in London, and an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Let's start with a foundational question. What are digital rights and how are they different from non-digital rights? So digital rights uh, are human rights. <laughs> we are just referring to digital rights when we speak about um, human rights as they are engaged uh, in, the, in the digital context. Uh, so an example I tend to give is, is the right to privacy. Um, you have the right to privacy of your correspondence. So you wouldn't expect anyone to just kind of like be able to open your mail and read it unauthorized. Uh, Likewise, you should have an expectation of privacy when you use uh, email or other types of electronic communications. Nani's definition of digital rights is very broad. It's not just freedom of expression. It's not just privacy. It's all human rights in the digital context. Given the wide breadth of digital rights we have at hand, the task of enforcing them can seem daunting. Should we narrow the focus of digital rights enforcement in accordance with traditional zones of legal rights, or should we adopt a pluralist approach? We asked Nani what concerns about digital rights are most urgent in her mind. I think that overall, one of my main concerns when uh, thinking of digital rights in in this day and age is um, the kind of creeping way in which we are giving up some of our rights in a digital context. There are many, many of our human rights are, you know, fought for (laughs) over a long period of time to actually uh, be able to realize those. And uh, we are seeing encroachment upon those rights uh, at a, you know, at a massive scale at the moment, Um, not only from governments, but also from private entities, companies. And while I think the pandemic has increased awareness with the general public, that we are living most more and more of our lives uh, online these days because we've all been faced with the situation in which we have to work from home, do schooling from home, um, all those sorts of things. Um, we tend to be uh, less careful in a way uh, when it comes to, to protecting our human rights in that context. And I'm thinking of some of the things that most of us do very mindlessly, you know, accepting terms and conditions, accepting that when we use an app or when we use uh, another type of program, that uh, our data are being collected and, and uh, will be analyzed and monetized subsequently um, in ways that we are not fully aware of when we actually give up those rights. So I think overall, um, the fact that I think for a lot of people, the digital context seems a little bit less tangible. There, there seems to be a lower threshold uh, to being careless about giving up some of our rights in that sphere. Certainly, some massive players in terms of size and power 
are responsible for creating pitfalls for digital rights and perpetuating vulnerabilities among the public at large. As Nani noted, encroachment is occurring at a massive scale that requires people to relinquish their rights to some extent, in a trade-off for other kinds of freedoms like expression and access. Are there measures that we can take, on a private, individual level, to mitigate some of this harm? Do we have a responsibility or even the ability to safeguard these rights ourselves? I think uh, we all have an obligation to to better inform ourselves of the implications of the technology that we use. Uh, But there's also, of course, uh, a corresponding task, if I can put it that way, for uh, civil society in kind of like highlighting in which ways the use of technology can be problematic for our human rights in that context, but also uh, an obligation uh, to especially government uh, when they use technology in administering government services. Uh, to be transparent about the way technology is used, uh, what implications it might have for our positions as an individual and as a citizen, and uh, making sure that there are processes and procedures through which we can find out more, uh, we can uh, complain if we're unhappy uh, with the decisions that are being made about our lives and about our, our, our legal positions also through technology. It's one thing to have, not a responsibility, but a mechanism for mitigating harm to one's own right. But it's not a level playing field, as Nani says. There's definitely a power imbalance, not only in terms of information asymmetry and access to platforms, but also in interactions with intermediaries who are not duty-bound, and who are able to create an illusion of meeting demand. Just to have a stab at participating in the level playing field, we have to make certain concessions. How do we recognize these vulnerabilities and balance them with the benefits of widespread information? How we choose to move forward will have some serious consequences. As Nani touched on, one of the tools for leveling the information playing field is transparency. But while it's true that transparency can do a lot of work in terms of knowledge and access, it's important to remember that it's a means toward protecting legal rights, not an end in itself. I also think it's interesting that, from a U.S. perspective, We're not necessarily plagued with the same challenges to access that maybe other polities are, at least not facially. So maybe transparency is a value, a solution that we throw around frequently, but that means less to us in some way. For America, transparency is a solution that can seem to come easily where free speech is the status quo, while in other countries it might be an aspiration. We seem to prioritize transparency differently. Which leads me to another question. Do we really have transparency? In the U.S., information flows relatively openly, but maybe governments and corporations are just better at hiding information in plain sight. For example, many terms and conditions are posted online, and users are required to accept them. But that's only real transparency if those users are able to read and understand the terms. Most of us have blindly accepted an app's terms and conditions without reading them. So while publication of information may look and feel like transparency, it may not be functioning that way. And we see this all the time. An abundance of information that comes from unfettered free speech can just as easily function as a means of concealing information under the guise of transparency. And it's not just private actors. As Nani noted, governmental actors make opaque disclosures of the way they're using technologies. So in this digital space that is riddled with information and knowledge gaps, how can people inform themselves? We asked Nani whether the law can reduce those gaps or whether it plays some other role in this scenario. 
That's a really interesting question. I think uh, in the end, like the law is a framework, right? And it always depends on on how you operationalize that and how you allow individuals to enforce their rights. It is also who takes responsibility in making sure that different actors, including companies, uh, you know, abide by those standards. And I think right now what we're seeing is like the very a continuation of us having to kind of like grapple with the role that corporations play um, in our lives and how they fit into the legal landscape. The human rights landscape, after all, was primarily designed to put obligations on states towards individuals and is less well equipped in dealing with like the horizontal effect, right? What do you have if you have a big corporation and, and, and they are actually violating human rights? But in the end, like a lot of it comes down to the willingness and um, uh, of, of states to actually make sure that those big companies are also held accountable for adhering to the human rights framework. Is the U.S. in denial about how freedom of expression is operating right now, given the authority that private companies have in curating the conversation, either by selectively moderating in some instances and in others choosing to do nothing? or even delegating that function to algorithms to do so without any guarantee of accuracy. Effectively, as Nani said, private companies increasingly occupy the very same space that governments once did in the context of free expression. That really gets to the root of current First Amendment debates. Right now in the U.S., we are experiencing increasingly visible right-wing extremism on these platforms. And our former president's use of Twitter is a good example of how our expansive conceptualization of free speech is being tested. Here's what Nani had to say about how freedom of expression operates in the international legal context and how that compares to the U.S. Um, I guess in the end, like uh, the U.S. has just a different idea from a, a, a great um, uh, deal of the rest of the globe. Um, at least in the way that the, the First Amendment is framed. I always wonder, though, like in practice, how far apart it is from uh, the way that it's set up in the end. I mean, if you look at the end result. So the idea under under public international law is that the right to freedom of expression can be limited under very uh, under a very restrictive set of circumstances. There, there is a cumulative test for that. There has to be a basis in law for the restriction. Uh, the restriction should serve a legitimate aim, and that can be public health and safety, national security, um, and the rights and reputations of others, for example. Uh, and the third requirement is that it has to be a proportionate measure. It has to be necessary. So that's a, that's the three-part test, and all parts of those tests have to be met in order for a restriction to be legitimate under international law. There also is a, a kind of another obligation under public international law, and that is actually to legislate, for states to legislate against hate speech, which is, I think, always the thing that confounds U.S. lawyers uh, the most in the sense like, you know, what is this thing that you have to kind of legislate against hate speech? But in the end, I think it doesn't, is not that far removed from the different tests that uh, have been formulated uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court um, as to what constitutes, like you know, proper incitement, etc. But it's a it's a different framework and it's a different way of looking at things. I think the biggest philosophical difference is, you know, the way that at least that we understand uh, the the approach of the First Amendment is this idea of, you know, 
more speech, more counter speech, etc., and let the marketplace of ideas like figure things out. I personally have an issue with you know marketplace theories because it it assumes that it's a level playing field for everyone, which is just not the case. We could go on about that in in in, in a lot more detail, but I'll I'll stop there. And I think that overall, like the the conceptualization of free speech and its limitation, and also the acknowledgement that in certain circumstances it will have to be balanced against other rights and other interests, uh, is a pretty fair one. Because in the end, the three-part test needs to be looked at very narrowly. Um, so it's not that you know anyone saying that they have a good reason to restrict speech should be able to get away with it under public international law. Threats to digital freedom of expression seem to be coming in from all sides. Governments, individual politicians, private companies, and even the public. Think of digital mobs and intense online public shaming. Nani highlighted the complexity here and explained how these actors often join forces to compound the effects of those threats. The right to freedom of expression in a digital context um, well, we see that play out a lot uh, in the context of, of freedom of expression uh, on the internet. Um, the idea that, of course, uh, the internet allows the free flow of information, as it's uh, kind of like called in, in uh, many of the human rights treaties, to a degree that we haven't really seen before, right? Uh, it's super easy to share information across borders. Um, and uh, that's, you know, has created wonderful opportunities for all of us to, to access information uh, and also on the other hand for us to kind of like share information and ideas uh, with others. The main kind of like issues that we're running into right now is that uh, of course uh, a lot of that sharing of information and a lot of sharing of, of information and ideas takes place on platforms that are owned by private companies. So we come back to what we were just talking about. And uh, that they basically set the terms uh, for the debate, um, and that that can yeah create uh, inequalities in who gets to speak and who does not get to speak. And this is where you enter into the domain of uh, of content moderation or content regulation. Um, the decisions of of what speech uh, gets taken down. Um, so that's like the most extreme uh, form, basically, but also what speech gets promoted uh, through uh, the different algorithms that try to make news feeds um, captivating uh, for its users uh, are all things that are at the moment um, not very visible to us, that's not very transparent. Um, and uh, they have a huge impact on, on how we perceive um, what, what the topic of debate at the moment actually is. And also, um, as research has shown, it can also very much influence the way that we that we see the world more broadly. While awareness is rising that attacks on freedom of expression are attacks on human rights, so too is the demand for and recognition of privacy rights. This is a classic tension in traditional law, but the digital context exacerbates it. On the one hand, the internet makes it easier for people to speak. It expands access for free expression. But on the other hand, it amplifies the issues surrounding privacy rights and reputational harms. Given that both privacy and freedom of expression are fundamental rights, we asked Nani how we might reconcile them today. 
Um, so indeed, the, the, the tension between privacy and freedom of expression is, is, a, is a classical uh, one uh, in the sense that particularly uh, we see that play out in, in journalism quite often, right? Um, in pieces that, uh, for example, um, highlight aspects of the lives of, of, of uh, public figures. Um, do we have a right to know as a public or is it their right to privacy that should kind of prevail? Uh, and that's a situation in which uh, those rights kind of like compete with each other and, and, and need to be balanced. The way that it's been it's been nicely framed is that freedom of expression and privacy are, are kind of like two sides of, of the same coin um, in the sense that um, each are kind of a prerequisite for enjoying the, the, the other right. Um, so there's just if you think for example of um of journalism right which is a very kind of like crucial activity when you think about uh, making sure that we have the information that we need to have an informed uh public debate about about issues that that matter to us all uh an investigative journalist is supposed to be able to speak to sources confidential in in a, in a confidential manner, right? Uh, they are uh, supposed to be able to protect those sources, um, which is like all of this is kind of like covered <laughs> uh, by the right to privacy. Uh, surveillance is one of the things that is uh, that is of course like hugely detrimental to things such as investigative journalism. Um, there have been several instances, right, where where um, Journalists are, are are being targeted by all sorts of like technological surveillance, uh, but also if you think of, for example, just like satellite tracking of of, of individual cell phones, etc. So that is that is one example in which you can kind of like see how the right to privacy is actually crucial in facilitating the right to freedom of expression. So the free flow of of information, the free flow of of, of well informed. Um, uh, journalism into the into the public domain, um, and I think that in those in those situations where you know the rights end up kind of competing with each other, be, you know those are usually kind of the things that we would that we in turn again like read about in in the in the papers, which is when there's you know uh, stories about public figures that that might seem you know juicy and um and the, and the question there then is like you know does that really serve a public interest to kind of like have have these stories out in the open and that is then framed as a conversation in which you kind of like have to figure out which right comes out um on top um in the balance but that's that's a test that usually is done very carefully um based on a bunch of very, very detailed criteria. Um, at least if you look at the European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence on this. Um, and I think that that acknowledges that the two rights are, are, are stand on equal footing. And um, as I said before, in a way, they are also like interdependent. You see the two uh, collide in certain situations, right? Um, you see uh, governments actually weaponizing social media platforms uh, to um, silence those who are critical of their policies, of, um, of, of, of a regime even. We've of course seen the, the terrible situation uh, in, in, in Myanmar um, where Facebook was weaponized to kind of like incite hatred towards the, 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 the Muslim population there. 
Um, but there's also a situation like, for example, um, in the Philippines where, you know, um, and in other countries also where you, basically the government uses troll armies to um, harass uh, opponents or uh, to silence critical voices. So it's really difficult uh, to say like who, who's the biggest <laughs> bad actor in, in any of this. And I also, I also don't feel that in the end, like the way to deal with the, with the power in essence that private platforms have in governing our speech is more government regulation. Uh, rather, I think that uh, what I mentioned before, like increased transparency and having uh, clear procedures um, to seek redress if, uh, if individuals, groups, etc., feel that they are being silenced um, uh, for unjustified reasons uh, would actually be the way to go. Increased visibility of minority rights advocacy or criticism of governments seems to correlate with more frequent retaliation by states, often under the guise of legitimate state interests. Nani weighed in on whether the kind of nationalism common to some of these infringements of digital rights is renewed or simply magnified. Uh, I think I think it's nothing new. Uh, I just think that we are seeing it uh, play out just in different um, in different arenas at the moment, right? Uh, I mean, you're in the U.S. <laughs> you've seen it up close and personal uh, there with the with the Trump administration, uh, the, the demonizing of 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 the free press, of the free media, uh, openly attacking uh, journalists, and also. Um, in the case of the former president, also kind of like taking to that platform to, um, you know, make threats and pretty incite, inciting kind of like comments um, on social media. And, and that is something that we see uh, across the globe to, to different degrees. Um, but um, I, I don't think that's something new. I don't think it's something that's unique to one region or the other. Um, or only just a, a couple of like jurisdictions. Um, it's 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 a tool, right? It's a platform, <laughs> being able to speak online, being able to speak uh, on social media channels, um, and it's one that's easily accessible. And yeah, that equally goes for, for 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 those in power as for those who are less in power. And I think that you know the only kind of like real problem there is um, whose voice gets amplified. Uh, in those spaces, and um, who doesn't, and who is left unprotected. The dangerous examples we're seeing today are not just digital in effect. They are violent human rights violations that raise both legal and moral issues. We asked Nani, does the legal framework capture what is at stake? In other words, is a rewriting of laws necessary to realize digital rights? So I'm not yet convinced that we need to completely reorganize things or, or kind of like reinvent um, our structures uh, because I actually don't think that we've, we've, we've tried enough to kind of like make the structures that we have work. Um, and so I, I, I refer to the issue of, of transparency, uh, which is a prerequisite, right, for accountability. Um, and, you know, we haven't tried yet, for example, to uh, come up with a system in which we just demand much more radical transparency from 
the from the from the big tech companies uh, that are playing such a big role um, in our lives nowadays uh, to better understand uh, how the technology works, uh, what the impact it has, uh, it is that it has on um, on um, on our individual lives, on our on our human rights, and we also definitely haven't put in place. Uh, corresponding mechanisms to make sure that we have access to justice in those contexts, that when we do know how our lives are being uh, impacted by technology, um, that, we, that we know exactly what steps we need to take, where do we need to go, what kind of claims can we make, etc. So there's a lack of uh, properly uh, using the mechanism of, uh, of transparency, uh, there's a lack of uh, mechanisms uh, to uh, allow us to seek redress based on perceived violations, and that leads to a gap in accountability. So until we've actually tried to make <laughs> that work, um, I'm a little bit reluctant to kind of like reinvent the wheel and kind of like rethink our entire system um, it has worked in, in, in different situations in the past. And of course, you know, this is not kind of like um, glossing over the fact that there's, um, this, there's really there's clear differences in, in our abilities, right, to, to, uh, to access remedies. And uh, access to justice absolutely uh, isn't equally distributed at the moment. Those are other big questions, right? It's not, that is not necessarily the, the construction of the system. Those are bigger picture questions that have to do with power structures in our societies and uh, our willingness to kind of like make systems work for everyone or not. Here's what Nani had to say about the work she's doing with the Digital Freedom Fund and what's on the horizon for digital rights litigation. So I have to, of course, come clean and say that at the moment I am not litigating uh, myself. I, um, I run an organization that supports uh, strategic litigation for digital rights. So um, we make it possible for, for the fabulous litigators uh, around the Council of Europe area to, to take cases that can help advance our, our human rights in the, in the digital context. Um, and there is there is some really amazing uh, work being done, um, in particular when it comes to uh, protecting um, our right to privacy, um, uh, data protection. We have great frameworks for that. Um, of course, like with the, with the GDPR, there's a lot of experimenting of kind of like seeing what that framework uh, can mean um, for protecting our right to data privacy. Um, but also uh, increasingly uh, cases that kind of like look at algorithmic decision making and the impact that that has uh, on on us as individuals. Um, and there again, like <laughs> we come on the issue of, of transparency, which seems to be a, a recurring theme in our conversation today, um, with uh, governments using um, technology to an increasing degree to uh, to make to run really important public processes, right? Uh, decisions um, about benefits, decisions about child welfare, etc. And um, it is uh, quite often not visible um, when technology is being used, um, and also not how it works. And uh, because there are such, you know, there are decisions being made that have such huge 
such a huge impact on the lives of, of individuals, of, of families, of communities, um, that those are really uh, very, very key issues uh, that will need to be addressed over the coming months and years. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current.